I'm a full-time faculty member in the philosophy department in Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. In May of 2017, I walked into my office at the university and found swastikas on my door along with a bag of feces. Swastikas were also drawn on the bathroom walls with my name prominently displayed beside them. This was in response to inviting James Damore, a former Google engineer who wrote what came to be called the Google Memo to speak on campus about gender issues at Google. In Damore's memo, he wrote about gender disparities and software coding. Specifically, Damore suggested that the gender imbalance at Google could be explained not by pervasive systemic bias against women in tech, but because men and women may have different interests and proclivities, and that those were likely influenced by biology. The point in inviting Damore was neither to support his arguments nor to defend them. Rather, it was to have a conversation about them. I thought this was important because Damore's argument ran afoul of the dominant moral orthodoxy on university campuses. Damore's argument, he stated that systemic discrimination against women is, is not responsible for a gender imbalance in the tech center, sector in the tech sector, but that biology uh, could have had something to do with it. This orthodoxy also suggested that even discussing biological differences was sexist. Social justice advocates responded to my invitation with Nazi symbols, a bag of feces, and threats. Today, I'll explain the mechanisms by which social justice ideology destroys not just our freedom of speech, but our cognitive liberty and our ability to communicate honestly. By cognitive liberty, I'm referring to your freedom to think as you'd like and your freedom to pursue truth. But first, what is social justice? Uh, Dr. Lindsay will discuss that in detail, but I'll give a primer. The following paragraph is from the book Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, and it defines social justice. Quote, social justice refers to reconstructing society in accordance with principles of equity, it's a big word, equity, inclusion, uh, recognition and inclusion, which is also another important word. Diversity and social justice are inextricably bound together. Without truly valuing diversity, we cannot effectively address issues of injustice. Without addressing issues of injustice, we cannot truly value diversity. That seems like a could be a pretty good idea, right? But not, not when you start breaking it down and looking at what those words mean. One problem is that social justice advocates use methods that silence all opinions but those that accord to their own dogma. They intimidate and suppress those who question their orthodoxy. The effect of this censorship is that divergent opinions are silenced, diverse views are punished, and social justice advocates become what they claim to hate, thugs and bullies. And when you understand this, it's easy to understand why, when social justice proponents were not successful at forcing the university to rescind Demore's invitation, or intimidating me to not showing up. On the night of our discussion, a young woman, in coordination with others in the audience, and Helen Pluckrose was on that panel, ripped out the speaker wires and damaged the equipment. 
security had to intervene. All because we wanted to talk about a heterodox idea that biological differences between men and women could influence the careers women choose. The Demore event was in 2017. Things have gotten worse since. I've been spit on, repeatedly threatened with physical violence. At a local bar, I was harassed by someone who recognized me. I asked uh, to have a conversation, and he, he kept saying, um, um, he kept insulting me, and then he finally said, I don't want to have a conversation with you, Peter. I want to hurt you. This kind of intimidation is now in effect with regard to this conference. On Twitter, I read, you're a Nazi speaking to Nazis. Social justice advocates and those caught in that orbit are livid that I'm speaking plainly and bluntly about social justice ideology and calling it out for what it is, an ideological cancer that's destroying civil society corroding our public institutions and attempting to rob us of our cognitive liberty. And make no mistake, one of the main reasons that social justice advocates are engaged, are enraged, excuse me, is that we're speaking too, too clearly and too bluntly about facts and evidence. We're not deferring to the judgments of their authorities or couching questions in feel-good saccharine terms. With regard to my being intimidated by speaking here today, I have news for them. Nobody will tell me what I can and cannot say or who I can and cannot speak to. Someone's being livid means nothing to me. I don't buy into the idea that if someone's offended by my forthright speech, I need to silence myself. Neither should anybody else. The ancient Greeks had a word for this, parahesia. Parahesia is frankness, it's truth-telling, it's speaking at risk when surrounded by hostility, it's speaking openly without ambiguity or concealment. Parahesia is boldness, it's speaking with sincerity and not because you want to flatter someone or reap personal reward. Parahesia is frankness, it's frankness, it's not persuasion, you don't persuade someone with parahesia. Speaking truth in the face of danger is also a moral act. You're attempting to communicate a possible flaw in someone's thinking and fix it. Speaking truth in the face of danger is a duty, and it is often the only way to solve problems and prevent dangerous ideas from spreading. And this is what I will do today. I will speak bluntly about the component of social justice ideology that by design seeks to destroy parahesia and with it our freedom of speech, our cognitive liberty, and our ability to honestly and openly communicate. Parahesia is the enemy of social justice. Social justice is the enemy of parahesia. Social justice ideology intentionally destroys our ability to be forthright and to artic articulate morally unfashionable views. It discourages us from saying, I don't know, when faced with a question which runs afoul of their moral orthodoxy. Social justice also damages our ability to communicate authentically and to make friendships because we don't know what people actually think because they're too afraid to say what they mean. And forming friendships is difficult, if not impossible, if we don't know what people actually think and feel. In that note, I'd like to thank Michael 
who's here somewhere, a man with whom I certainly have considerable political and metaphysical differences, and I have unquestionably become a better person and a sharper thinker as a result of engaging those differences with Michael. And I have formed a most unlikely friendship with him, and I am incredible, incredibly grateful for our relationship and our friendship. Thank you, Michael. Now, I'll walk you through seven ways social justice destroys our freedom of speech, our cognitive liberty, and ruins our ability to communicate honestly with each other. I'll explain how social justice also has a built-in feature to deter or punish parahesia and thus insulate itself from criticism. In my next talk later today, I'll discuss parahesia as an antidote to social justice lunacy, especially when coupled with skills like listening and willingness to revise our beliefs. All right, that was the intro. Let's do it. The first way social justice destroys our freedom of speech and our cognitive liberty and our ability to communicate and destroys and is the enemy of parahesia is through name calling. I'm sure you've heard it. On Twitter, in response to my speaking at this conference, someone simply tweeted at me, bigot. Name calling is the coin of the realm in social justice universe. Nazi, racist, homophobe, transphobe, bigot, fascist, and the new term grifter for people who call out this nonsense. Name calling is their number one bullying tactic and they apply it unremittingly to anyone who questions their dogma or says something they find unacceptable or offensive. Social justice advocates call you names to silence you. They call you names to deter and punish parahesia. A few years ago, when I saw the word Nazi being applied to almost everyone for almost everything, including Orthodox Jews who lost family members in the Holocaust. I put out a tweet urging people to rein in their excessive uses of the word Nazi and use it only with Nazis. I was immediately and viciously excoriated by literally hundreds and hundreds of social justice devotees. I was then incessantly called a Nazi because I urged others to be more thoughtful, judicious, and precise in the way we apply the term Nazi. My favorite response to these attacks was from James Lindsay. It was his tweet, quote, if you insist that the only people we should call Nazis are actual Nazis, that's because you're a Nazi. <laughs> I call this theory Nazi fragility. And it's true because if you think it's not, that's because you're showing it because you're a Nazi. <laughs> Lindsay was playing off an idea found in the social justice literature where denial that one is a racist is guilty of one's racism. It's a Kafka trap. Every time you say, no, that's not true, they use that as evidence for the fact that of whatever, whatever they're accusing you of. The problem is you could use that with anything. You, you could say you're a hippopotamus, and if someone says, no, that's evidence that you're a hippopotamus. It, it just breaks a construct of reality from what Michael was talking about in his talk. On a less play, playful note, the semantic range of the word Nazi continues to expand. Recently in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada, an elderly woman with a walker was stopped by Antifa militants. Antifa are the self-described anti-fascists who behave like street thugs. She was attempting to enter Mohawk College where Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, and interviewer Dave Rubin were holding a discussion on free speech and censorship. They screamed Nazi scum at her for wanting to listen to the discussion. 
Because we're afraid to bear the cost of being associated with slanderous labels, we silence ourselves. The goal of smearing people with the words Nazi, homophobe, and bigot is to make the cost of parahesia even higher. It's to prevent you from speaking openly and honestly. In the social justice worldview, listening to the wrong opinions is not allowed. So they call you names, create a climate of fear, and try to, be, try to force you to not be forthright in your speech and attempt to stop your freedom of assembly, as it ha has recently happened in Canada in the example. Okay, the second way that social justice destroys our freedom of speech and our cognitive liberty, ruins our ability to communicate, and is the enemy of parahesia, is two, claiming that speech is violence. The basic idea is just that. Speech, or words, are violent and affects us the same way as does a physical trauma. No matter how many times I have heard this idea, it continues to pop back up. It's like a cockroach. In 2017, professor of psychology Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote a popular piece for the New York Times entitled, When is Speech Violent? She rationalized speech being violence and attempted to ground her argument in discussions about the nervous system and responses to stress. To state the obvious, words and physical things occupy different categories. The British philosopher Gilbert Ryle calls this a category mistake. Words are words and violence is violence. Beyond an obvious logical fallacy, however, there's the problem when claiming that speech is violence as articulated by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in the 2017 piece in The Atlantic titled, Why It's a Bad Idea to Tell Students Words Are Violence. They write, and I quote, it tells members of a generation already beset by anxiety and depression that the world is far more violent and threatening place than it really is. It tells them that words, ideas, and speakers can literally kill them. Even worse, at a time of rapidly rising political polarization in America, it helps a small subset of that generation justify political violence. The main thrust of this is that if speech is violence and someone says things I don't like, they're perpetrating violence against me. And so I can react with their violence or to their violence with violence of my own. And indeed, we saw this exact way of thinking manifest itself in widespread public defenses of punching Nazis, which was all the rage in around 2017 when an actual neo-Nazi, Richard Spencer, was sucker punched in Washington, DC. We currently see this with milkshaking. That is, when milkshakes are thrown on people considered to be ideological enemies, as what recently happened here in the UK and has happened in the United States. Beyond the fact that speech is violence leads to actual violence, however, is that claiming speech is violence is a built-in defense mechanism to prevent an ideology or a belief from being examined and thus potentially revised. If speech is indeed violence, then why would I want to have a conversation with someone who would perpetrate violence against me? In other words, why would I want to speak with someone who holds a different opinion? Claiming speech as violence is a way to cut off dialogue before it even begins. It's also a convenient excuse to avoid intellectual work needed to understand and rebut opposing arguments. 
Someone's speech can certainly make you feel bad, but it is not violence. When someone calls me a bigot on Twitter, that is not a violent act. We cannot control what other people say to us, but we can control our reaction to what other people say. We would do best to remember the adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Claiming that speech is violence is also a way to hamper or deter parahesia because your forthright speech could be deemed violent by someone who doesn't like what you're saying or how you're saying it. And the idea goes, if speech is violent, then speech should be limited because we want to limit violence. Three, inclusion. The third way social justice ideology de de destroys our freedom of speech and our cognitive liberty, ruins our ability to communicate, and is the enemy of parahesia is through inclusion. The word inclusion has several meanings, and many of these are not just positive, but indispensable for civil society. Basically, inclusion can be distilled into the synonym welcoming. So an inclusive environment is one that is welcoming, and who wouldn't want to create a welcoming environment, particularly when it comes to welcoming people with different immutable characteristics, like race or disability status or sexual orientation. Every sane, decent person should want to create inclusive, welcoming environments. In practice, however, inclusion means something quite different. Inclusion means restricted speech. So an inclusive space is one that restricts speech so that its members feel welcome. An inclusive space must restrict speech or some members would not feel welcome and thus the space would not be inclusive. Typically, morally unfashionable ideas are restricted and in the current moral zeitgeist, these revolve around things like race and gender or identity. Participants cannot say anything that hurt anybody's feelings or even potentially hurt someone's feelings, or potentially make them feel unwelcomed. Like, huh, what role does biology play in influencing life choices? The deeper point here is that inclusion is another attempt to, to deter parahesia and thus prevent people from hearing forthright speech and having to contend with its contents. It's a way to restrict cognitive liberty. How could you engage in ideas honestly with the ever-looming possibility that people could be offended by your forthright speech or even by a misused word? You cannot. We always feel like we're walking on eggshells. Inclusion is parahesia's enemy. It makes us afraid to speak honestly, clearly, and directly. It makes us afraid to say what we mean, fearful of hurting others' feelings, and afraid not to offend lest our speech be deemed responsible for creating an environment that's not inclusive. Because of inclusion, you have to struggle, we all have to struggle to figure out what other people mean. And we have to do that because people don't say what they mean. And we have to figure out what we mean because we're afraid to say what we mean. We're afraid to speak honestly and directly. And it's by saying what you mean that we can actually figure things out. It's through parahesia. That's the solution to this. 
If you don't buy into the dominant moral orthodoxy, inclusion forces you to lie. It prevents parahesia. And it is not possible to have healthy relationships that are based on deceit. You shouldn't have to struggle to figure out what anybody else means. And you shouldn't have to struggle to figure out what you mean. Inclusive spaces cause you to use people and get used by people because nobody will be forthright for fear of losing speech rights, which ironically, they've already given up. Four, disinvitations. The fourth way social justice destroys our freedom of speech and our cognitive liberty, ruins our ability to communicate, and is the enemy of parahesia is through disinvitations. A disinvitation is when someone is invited to speak, usually but not necessarily on a college campus, and that invitation is rescinded. I first realized disinvitations were a problem and weren't going away anytime soon in 2014 when two prominent women, former US Secretary of State, or former US Secretary of, yeah, of State Condoleezza Rice and Somali-born feminist author Ayan Hirsi Ali were disinvited. That is, they were invited and then their invitations were rescinded. Rice was twice invited in 2004, once from Rutgers University and the other time from Minnesota, and Ayan Hirsi Ali from Yale. People from all over the political spectrum were and continue to be invited to speak on college campuses only to have their invitations revoked because someone complained, usually about positions they've taken on political issues. To give you a sampling here of across the board political issues. Christina Hoff Summers was disinvited from Oberlin College, Cornell West from UCLA, Ben Carson from Alma, uh, Alma Co Co College, excuse me, Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky. He was, he was disinvited from Drexel, Madeleine Albright from Syracuse, University and the University of Huntsville, Alabama, so she was a twofer. Uh, the Dalai Lama was disinvited from the University of California, San Diego. Basically, anybody can be disinvited for anything. You don't like the contents of someone's speech, you disinvite them on a college campus, the one place we need to have these conversations. While disinvitations occur by both the right and the left, it's more common on the left to disinvite a speaker than the right. The nonprofit, nonpartisan foundation, FIRE, F-I-R-E, Foundation for Individual Rights in Ed Education, run by Greg Lukianoff, has a detailed list of individuals who've been disinvited to speak and where they were disinvited to speak and why on their webpage. I'd encourage you to take a look. It's very interesting, particularly when he says who, when the webpage lists who disinvites them, those on the right or those on the left. Speakers are disinvited because someone or some group does not want an audience to hear their message. Sometimes they disinvite someone because they dislike an individual's political views, like Vice President Mike Pence's disinvitation from Taylor University in 2019. Sometimes they don't like the speaker's interpretation of historical issues, like my fellow Portland State University uh, um, colleague, Bruce Gilley. He wrote a, a piece uh, entitled, um, that, that was a defense of colonialism. And that piece was later retracted by the journal editors due to death threats. They wanted his PhD, they wanted his um, tenure, they wanted his employment, they came after him full steam. In every case, social justice activists curtail the, the audiences, your audiences, the people's freedom to listen, and they attempt to prevent the speaker 
from parahesia, speaking boldly when surrounded by hostility. And the new technique they use now is to claim that it's too expensive to have a speaker come on campus because the cost of security is, is overwhelming. Finally, it bears noting that if activists are unsuccessful in their attempt to disinvite a speaker, then they have other ways to prevent parahesia. They'll attend and then disrupt an event by bringing in air horns, as has happened to Jordan Peterson at McMaster University in Ontario, shout the speaker down, as happened to Christine Hoff Summers at Lewis and Clark, or as happened at our event at Portland State, they just pull out the speaker wires. Five, bias response teams. The fifth way social justice destroys our freedom of speech and our cognitive liberty, ruins our ability to communicate, and is the enemy of parahesia is through bias response teams. According to a 2018 article in the Wall Street Journal by Gillian K. Melchior, more than 200 American university campuses have established a similar administration of offices to handle acts of alleged bias that violate no law. A 2017 article in USA Today puts that number at 232. So, what are bias response teams on more than 200 college and university campuses? What are these things? Well, according to the USA Today article, bias response teams, quote, encourage students to report speech that may be offensive, hurtful, or marginalizing to minority groups. Ultimately, in an effort to create more inclusive campuses. Notice the word inclusive. It's a variant of the word inclusion I spoke about in point three. The article goes on to state, once a student's speech is reported, university officials investigate. If the, pa if the panel concludes it was biased speech, he or she could be sanctioned by the administration. To personalize this, at my university, Portland State University, our Global Diversity and Inclusion webpage, the answer to the question, quote, what is bias, <laughs> immediately begins with, and this is a direct quotation, bias is a state of mind. Bias is a state of mind. Please think about that for a moment. Let that percolate. A bias response team is an institutionalized mechanism that can punish offenders for articulating what's on their minds. According to the foundational rights for uh, FIRE, the organization that I mentioned before for individual rights in education, here are some examples of this, and I quote, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte included, quote, political beliefs in the definition of bias. So drawing pictures or cartoons that belittle someone because of their beliefs or political affiliation. This would apply to virtually all political cartoons. Examples of bias at Williams College include, quote, comments on social media about someone's political beliefs and affiliations. This definition can include any response to political views posted on social media or even uh, criticism of elected officials. McAllister College now deleted definition included, quote, bias against another person based upon his, okay, wait for, wait for it, membership in a group or an individual's particular characteristics, role, or behavior. Behavior. This definition could apply to almost anyone for almost anything. At this juncture, I want to be crystal clear. There needs to be some mechanism in place to protect people from abuse on the basis of immutable characteristics, like race or gender. 
In the United States, we already have legal protections, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlaws discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Acting against someone on the basis of their race, gender, or sexual orientation simply cannot and should not be tolerated in civil society. But this is not what bias response teams do. Bias response teams have a chilling effect on freedom of speech and cognitive liberty and our ability to honestly communicate with each other because it's an enforcement mechanism for inclusion. This is how it works. If someone feels intellectually unsafe, intellectually unsafe, they can make a report to the bias response team. And it's worth noting, reports can be filed anonymously. Anybody can file a report about anybody, about anything, even if they weren't there. And just as a parenthetical, the new thing now is being offended by proxy. So it's not that somebody's offended that you said something like, hey guys, it's that somebody else is offended on behalf of somebody else who heard what it was that someone was offended by. So, if someone holds a belief that's literally deemed by anybody to be non-inclusive, the offended individual could file a report with a bias response team and punishment could be forthcoming. According to Christian Schneider's Wall Street Journal article of 2019 in the piece entitled Bias Response, a welcome to the class of 1984, a chilling look inside colleges, systems for reporting and police of, policing offensive speech, here are some actual examples. Quote, a Portland State student, I don't know why it keeps coming as Portland State, but a Portland State student filed a complaint against women, a woman who jokingly described herself as being schizophrenic, as, as sometimes being schizophrenic. An Asian American student at the University of Minnesota reported a food service worker for saying hello in Japanese. An Indiana University teaching assistant filed a case against a guest lecturer who tried to ex explain the role of the Federal Communications Commission by citing the Janet Jackson's Nipplegate controversy at 2004 in the Super Bowl. A 22-year-old female student at Utah reported a professor for assigning too many classic works on economics written by men. She claimed the selections created a hostile learning environment. <laughs> right to the bias response team. Six is cancel culture. The six-way social justice ideology destroys our freedom of speech and our cognitive liberty, ruins our ability to communicate, and is the enemy of parahesia is through cancel culture. Cancel culture is a type of boycott when someone, usually but not always someone famous, says something somebody deems offensive and they become canceled or shunned or completely ignored. I won't spend too much time on this as it's fairly self-explanatory and commonly known, yet it's important to mention because it's a method primarily used by social justice advocates to deter individuals from speaking openly and to punish them if they have made verbal mistakes. And we have all made verbal mistakes, myself included. A few examples of people who have been canceled include American filmmaker James Gunn, who is fired from Guardians of the Galaxy 3 over offensive tweets, and he's since been rehired for it. Actress and producer Roseanne Barr over a tweet, and I'm sure you know, comedian uh, uh, Louis C.K. over sexual behavior. 
No doubt you can think of other examples in popular culture or even your own lives where this has happened. Cancel culture creates an atmosphere or a fear of saying or do, doing something that could be perceived the wrong way. It also offers no redemption to those who've made a mistake and are genuinely sorry. And it does not differentiate the innocent from the guilty. A quick note on this. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, was a proponent of cancel culture. When it came out that he donned blackface and then lied about how many times he had done so, many were quick to call for his canceling. This is a mistake. The way forward is not to cancel people who have perpetrated this madness. It's to forgive them and collectively work to solve shared problems. This way of thinking, to forgive someone, is an anathema to social justice, which has no mercy and offers no path to redemption. We should not fight cancel culture with cancel culture. We shouldn't try to, quote, teach people a lesson by subjecting them to something that's nasty and mean-spirited, something we're actively trying to fight against. Quite the contrary. We must show those caught in the myopic rage of social justice lunacy that there is another way, and that way is by treating people with decency, even though they have failed to treat others with decency in the past. As an ancient point of contact, in Socrates' conversation with Thrasymachus in Book One of the Republic, Socrates says that beating a horse does not make a better horse. So too, beating a man does not make a better man. Inflicting misery on someone only makes someone worse off. And we become worse off because we have inflicted misery on people. <coughs> Seven, idea laundering. The seventh way social justice ideology destroys our freedom of speech and our cognitive liberty, ruins our ability to communicate, and is the enemy of parahesia is through idea laundering. Idea laundering is a, is a term coined by Brett Weinstein. Here's how it works. Academics who have strong moral intuitions about a particular idea get together and form a peer-reviewed journal. These academicians then publish articles in, the in those journals in a way to launder their ideas. In other words, just as with money, money laundering, when illegal money goes into a system and comes out looking legal, with idea laundering, ideas enter one end and exit the other as knowledge. Then, to justify their moral ideas and political agendas, self-credentialed social justice scholars point to journal articles as evidence that their beliefs are true. But it's not evidence. What, it's, not only is it not evidence, but what's coming out of these journals isn't knowledge. It's, as author Douglas Murray terms it, a list of assertions. This list of assertions are usually moral impulses masquerading as knowledge. For example, you might be told that any disagreement with social justice ideas about race and racism is a sign of your inherent weakness. That's white fragility, Robin DiAngelo. Or intentional refusal to engage honestly. That's pernicious ignorance, Christy Dodson. Or an unjust request that someone do your homework for you. That's epistemic exploitation, Nora Berenstain. Or you might find yourself accused of complicity in white supremacy. That's Barbara Applebaum. Or misogyny, they, that's Kate Mann. 
In all of these cases, there's a fabricated moral infrastructure designed to denigrate and shame parahesia. Idea laundering creates an internally coherent ecosystem that makes sense internally, but is completely untethered to reality. Proponents try and pass off this ecosystem as the ecosystem in which you should live, you and everybody else, you and me and everybody else. They then try to foist it upon us, but it's make-believe land. It's completely deranged. And there are now entire bodies of literature which have been made up whole cloth. Their findings are not knowledge. In fact, they're not even findings because they didn't find anything. Their conclusions are not evidence. Idea laundering is pernicious and dangerous. By pointing to their peer-reviewed literature, social justice scholars are able to convince people, even themselves, that they possess actionable information. They do not, however, possess actionable information. Their ideas are ideologically driven and also often unfalsifiable, like the patriarchy, and in many cases, completely fabricated. They then point to these bogus lines of literature and say, you should believe what we do. You shouldn't believe what you do. What you believe is wrong, and I have evidence. And they're pointing to things that they've just, is a way they've, they've laundered these ideas. They've discharged their own moral impulses in these journals. Okay, those were the seven ways that social justice ideology destroys our freedom of speech, our cognitive liberty, and ruins our ability to communicate and is the enemy of parahesia. There are other ways, but let's run through those again. One is name-calling, Nazi, bigot, transphobe, etc. Grifter is the new one I hear a lot. Two is claiming speech is violence. Someone in speech is, is violence, therefore not only do I not have to listen to it, but that speech should be shut down. And because it's violence, I'm not going to do the intellectual work it takes to figure out what that person is talking about. It's violence. Shut it down. Three, inclusion. The synonym for inclusion is welcoming, but what inclusion actually means is restricted speech. Inclusive environments must restrict speech or they would not be inclusive. Four, disinvitations. If your university, usually but not always a university, has invited someone to speak and you're politically offended by them or they've adopted a, a, a policy, a particular policy that you don't like, you get them dis, in, disinvited. That also works in concert in the suite of, of tactics that they use because they can claim that it's, it's what the person is saying is violence and it's creating a non-inclusive environment. Five, bias response teams. Well over 200 universities, at least in the United States, I can't speak to it here in, in the UK, uh, have bias response teams in which anybody, even anonymously, can file a report. And more often than not, those reports go to the, they're filed with the police and stored. So somebody can claim that you said something and then that claim is then filed with the police. Six, cancel culture, which is another way of saying boycotting. We want to cancel what someone's done. We want to wipe out their accomplishments. This has happened to a lot of people. Seven is idea laundering, the idea that they, they have these moral intuitions. You have a moral intuition. You have a moral intuition. You have a moral intuition. You get together and you make a journal. You write about whatever it is. Other people fact check it, quote unquote, or look at what it is, and it comes out the other side as knowledge. So someone say, well, how do you know your moral impulse is true? Well, I know it's true because here's an article about it. So 
Now that the main enforcement mechanism using social that social justice adherents use to prevent others from challenging and questioning dogma is, is clear. If SWAT stickers on bathroom walls and a bag of feces on an office door won't intimidate, then social justice proponents still have options, many options. So where do we go from here? How do we address the ever constricting and increasingly institutionalized urgent threat? In my next talk later today, I'll discuss one strategy, specifically how we use parahesia as an antidote to social justice madness, particularly when we couple parahesia with a willingness to revise our beliefs and an open conversation with which we engage people. Thank you.